Hi, I'm Rob Ray of the Buffalo Sabres. This is our new head coach, Ted Nolan. Cadet, your line's up. Cadet's up. My philosophy as a, as a coach, philosophy that I, that I grew up with, that everybody's important. Regroup, regroup. Torch! I'm just really, really thrilled to be right here. And there's a lot of people in my life that uh, that helped along the way. And Get your brain on the small little f- things. The saddest part about the whole thing is you hear the rumors. Uh, I'm out of the league now because I'm... I was, my asking price for, for salaries was too high. It's very simple. I'm going to tell you what happened. First of all... One of the things I do for a living is I host conferences. I wear many hats. I can deliver a keynote address, moderate panels. Throughout the day, I ask the questions the audience deserves answering. But what I love most is a fireside chat, a one-on-one conversation with an extraordinary person. This year, hosting the Coffee Association of Canada event, I had a chance to sit down with Ted Nolan. As we were unpacking his story of making it to the NHL, I mean, this is a kid that grew up without plumbing and electricity. Hand-me-down skates were so big, he had to stuff rain boots in it. Well, as we learned about his story, I saw how moved the audience was, as I was. And thankfully, we recorded it so I can share it with you today. Let's go live to the Ted Nolan event. First of all, getting to the NHL, for anybody that's aspired to be a professional athlete, or as a child wanting to be a professional athlete, it's one of the toughest gauntlets is the NHL. Just playing pro is tough. Well, Ted Nolan played pro for 10 years. He had a stint with Pittsburgh and Detroit. Turned out, though, that Ted's superpower wasn't playing hockey, it was coaching. Three times in the Memorial Cup, a winner, coach of the year in the NHL. But what makes this story so special and why I think it's, it's gonna really resonate with you is getting in the NHL is one thing, but when you're battling discrimination, racism, when you're not part of a family that can just shell out for hockey camps and everything else, when they're just scraping money for you to play rec league and you still find your way there, and then in your legacy, your two sons find their way there, is something very special. Uh, I'm from a family of uh, 12. I got six brothers and five sisters, and, and I always thought I was the most special one of the whole group. And then all of a sudden, I heard my sister tell her friends that she thought she was, and, and so forth, right down the line. And and one thing I learned at a very early age that, that everybody is treated equally and fairly and, and loved the same way. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Please give an incredible round of applause for the one and only Ted Nolan. Before we get into sort of lessons learned, NHL and stuff, I just take us back to your childhood because when I read about it, it was more like you grew up in the 1800s versus the 1900s in terms of the circumstances. So take us back to just so people understand what life was like for a young Ted Nolan. Well, I, I grew up in a, uh, a small First Nation commu- community in uh, northern Ontario. It's called Garden River. It's uh, right outside the city of Sault Ste. Marie. I'm from a large family, a family of 12. Had the house probably as big as this stage but with a wood stove and outdoor plumbing. And uh, the first time I ever had a shower in a house was when I was 16 years of age when I, when I left home. So times are, times are tough, you know, going to, going to school a lot of mornings with, with not too much to, to eat. And then when you get to it, and we all know the, the story of the, of the residential schools. 
Uh, I went to a day school, uh, so I had the privilege of, of coming home at nighttime, which didn't make it much uh, much easier. But but when I was growing up, that's how I found love for, for hockey. I, I really did. There wasn't much else to do. So when I interviewed Phil Fontaine for my show, and he talked about his residential school experiences, and he said they were called Sauvage. Church was trying to say the only way you can become part of humanity is to lose a lot of what your culture is about. Did you experience that in day schools as well, that they really wanted to take away some of your identity and make them more their identity? Yeah, they, they tried. But uh, coming from a, a large family and, and a very proud family of who we are, uh, my mother uh, ran the, a local play on a community called the Hiawatha Play. I was there. She organized all the powwows. Uh, she was a, a house mom for a lot of the AIM movement at the time. It was the American Indian movement at the time. And it was fighting for our rights and, and what have you. So I, I grew up very, very proud. The more they told me not to be who I was, the more I fought to fight who I was. And when you're at that school, from what I understand, you would, there'd be bullying and there'd be a sense that, you, you know, you're not, you're not one of us. I enjoyed the comment you made. I think it was in a podcast where you said, that was fine, but I remember I came from a big family and I think my uncle owned a boxing club. You were, you were a family that took care of each other. So I, I still remember, we'll talk about this later, first time I, I left home, one of the players I was playing with, he, he speared me pretty good right in, the, in the gut. And I was, like I said, that was the first time. And he said, what are you doing here, you wahoo? And I speared him back and I said, I was here first. <laughs> so good for you. so I, I just had a very, very strong uh, foundation. I try to find silver linings in everything. And I have to believe your level of gratitude must be so much more real and resonating compared to somebody that grew up that had a full belly every morning, that had a shower that they could t you know, spend a half an hour. There must be some positives to, to sort of where you started. It was, it, there was a lot of positive. I mean, uh, and then when, it, when I left the reserve and then all of a sudden you're, you're signing a professional contract and you're, you're hanging around with other people with some solid means to, behind them and they get to do anything they want. And I just found they, they took a lot of things for granted. There, there's a lot of kids out here that are not fortunate, uh, like a lot of us in, in this room are, and they have to fight for everything. So I, I took that to, to heart and even, even to this day, it's not, not the clothes you wear or the car you drive, it's uh, the food that you have in your fridge. So I want to now get back to hockey, and I don't know if this is folklore or reality, but your first pair of skates were so big that the only way you could fit them is putting rain boots inside. Is that, is that a true story? Yeah. yeah. You know, you're growing up where we grew up, we used to tell each other all poor stories. Then we tried to figure out who was more more poor than the next. And uh, we'd go through all this stuff. I said, well, remember that time you used to tie those wool socks together and tie them over your head for, for your winter uh, toque? Then you get into the skates. You know, remember the, the skates were this big and you just put your rubber boots inside and tie them up as tight as you can. And they're probably what size, size eight. My feet were size maybe four or five. And that's how I learned how to skate. And I, and I, I didn't get a brand new pair of skates until I was, uh, I was 16 years of age. The other story that I loved is this determined Ted Nolan deciding you're going to build your own outdoor rink. Now, just to set the context, there's no plumbing in this house. Tell us how you somehow found a way to create a rink, because from what I understand, it's made out of cold air and ice and, and water. How you made that all work? I was very fortunate. So now I get to talk to a lot of kids across the country about uh, whatever they want to be in life. And, and you use the metaphor of uh, you know one step at a time, one day at a time. But mine was one pail of water at a time. We had an outdoor pump. And uh, anybody ever been to Sault Ste. Marie area in Northern Ontario in the wintertime, it gets pretty cold, I mean, 30 below, 40 below. And, and once in a while, that, that pump would freeze. So you had to not only pump the water, you had to make the fire at the bottom of the, of the, of the steel pipe 
to thaw it out. And then all of a sudden you, you grab this little pail of water. And I was only six, eight years old. Fill up the pail and walk around the corner of my house, pack a little snow and put it down. And I'm, I'm thinking back now, it must have took me for forever. Uh, going back and back and forth. But once I, and that, I did, that's how I did it for uh, four or five years before uh, we got enough money to go to the city to play uh, recreation hockey. How did you go from rec hockey, which your parents could scrape some money together, to even getting noticed because in Canada, the, the feeder system into NHL hockey doesn't really begin at the backyard ice rink made out of. Well, I'm, I'm really glad the, the time that I grew up in the situation I grew up in because I, I don't know if I would have made it any other way. And we just had to make do with what we had. And I, I didn't know there was a OHL draft to begin with. I didn't know there was AAA, AA and all those type of things. I just, I just wanted to play it. I played house league hockey and that was good enough. And, but the, one of the, Teams that I was playing with when I was 14, I started scoring 10 goals a game, 11 goals in recreation hockey. <laughs> a lot of kids are just learning how to skate. I learned how to skate a little bit better, and so I was scoring a lot of goals in that league, uh, but never playing in, in a higher league, and someone seen me play. They convinced the Sault Ste. Marie Greyhounds to give me an opportunity to try out. Uh, Craig Hartsburg was there as a pretty well-known NHL hockey player. Greg Millen had played with, uh, he's on uh, Hockey Night in Canada, and a year later, uh, Wayne Gretzky came there. Yeah, I mean, it was a serious hockey program. Did you think they did it at the time as a favor or did they, did they see that this kid that was scoring 10 goals could actually be developed that early? You know, I, I don't know if it was a favor or not. I, I just loved to play. I, I didn't care where I played. And the year I did make the Sioux Greyhounds, we also played softball back home. Uh, we went out to Saskatchewan and we played in the All-Ontario, uh, All-Canada Fastball Tournament. And I never skated all summer. We bust up Saskatchewan from Sioux St. Marie. It takes us with three or four days. Played the tournament, came back, and I came back at four o'clock in the morning. And the next morning was the Sioux Greyhound training camp. And I went to the shed, grabbed my skates, and went out and almost died the first practice. But uh, somehow I, I, I made it. And I think growing up the way I grew up with, with six brothers and in the situation that we grew up into and, and fighting for everything we had to, had to get and, and going through those uh, school situations where, you know, the, uh, the teacher would put your head in a, in a bowl of soup and tell them you to eat it. And then you got to go into, into the nursing room and they, they scrape your head with one of those. Uh, not too sure if anybody in this room ever experienced it. You grab one of those knit combs and you and you comb your hair to get the lice out of your hair. So I, I just didn't know. I just I just uh, liked to play and, and I was very fortunate to, to make the team. So you made the team, but the first year you're not making the Sioux. They send you, I think, Kenora, Ontario, and sort of their feeder system, I guess. And that's where you really run into a lot of, I mean, you no longer have that family, the protective knit. You're away from home. What was that like? Because I have to believe that was uh, just an eye-opener. As you said, the first shower I had indoors where I was living and stuff. How did that all factor into who you are today? Uh, that, that was the first year that really, instead of loving the game now, I, it was just kind of surviving in the game. It wasn't, I, I didn't enjoy going to practice. I didn't enjoy playing in a league. I think I had probably five or six fights in the first four days. And that was with the team I'm supposed to be playing for. Then all of a sudden you, you play the opposition, you got to do it again. These guys were big. I, I was only 155, 160 pounds. I wasn't that big. And some of these guys were 6'4", 240. And it's almost like, that's totally bullying. Then I went to school. They didn't take too kind to our people back then, fighting at school every day. So I, I couldn't fight in hockey at the same and, and go to school at the same time. So one had to give. So I just give up school. Uh, only thing I, I do remember, and anybody ever been to Kenora, Ontario, the old Holiday Inn was built on the waterfront. 
and probably about a 20 foot drop into the water. And I was walking by and this guy didn't like who I was and, and he grabbed the hold of me and we, we fought and he was going to throw me over. So I would have been one of those uh, murdered, murdered and, and missing uh, people too. So you just had to, and so that was the environment that I, that I was What's, playing. What saved you that day? Well, well, thank God there were some, uh, some guys that, that seen the whole, whole thing and they come running over and, and, and helped. And the crazy guys who helped me, they got him off me. Then they wanted to grab him and throw him over. <laughs> no, it, it doesn't work that way. So, but uh, I was just, I was really, and then I just kind of give, put my guard up even more. Uh, so I blanked out. I, I just, uh, I drank a little bit, got into the weed at the time and survived. And lo and behold, I, I must have improved in hockey because I, I won rookie of the year on the team. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. I always remember my father telling me to, to be proud of who I was and to, uh, to be strong. It, it wasn't very much fun. So when he asked me to hop in the car with him, uh, that's when I, uh, I just said, no, I'll stay. And the thing is, he's never a quitter. Never a quitter. Ted Nolan is my guest today, NHL hockey player, NHL and international coach, and just a wonderful human being. Thank you. So, you know, you talk about this pendulum swing from loving the game to just trying to survive. But I think a lot of people in this world right now are kind of gone from going through this pendulum. A lot of insecurity, a lot of uncertainty. What advice can you give people out there that as tough as it gets, sometimes if you just power through it, coming out of it, you might become an even better human being? You, you might. It doesn't work all the time like that, but I was, I was really blessed with, with the upbringing that uh, I had and, and we talk at, at home and all the obstacles that we had to face through and uh, being told to make sure that we're always keep our back to the wall, make sure your, your surroundings, make sure you, you know how to get out. When I got to Kenora, I just really wanted to prove that you could. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. If someone given a, the fair opportunity, you can. So I, I think trying to play the game for the enjoyment of, of playing it became a medal that I wanted to prove that we could. Nobody's going to chase me home uh, like a lot of my, my my siblings before me or some of the people in our communities before me because there was a heck of a lot more better hockey players than I was. Were you skating for your people? Were you skating for underserved minorities or at, the, at that point you're just saying piss off I'm going to stay with this program because I'm not going to let anybody punch me out of this opportunity. I, I think I was, I was skating for for majority of our people versus my, myself because like I said in Kenora I, I, I didn't like the game anymore I just uh, I just didn't like it and all of a sudden you get to a point where you, where you drafted a National Hockey League and, and I didn't want to go actually and this is a name from the past uh, Ted Lindsay He's the one who started the um, NHL Players Association back in the day. And he was the NHL GM of the Detroit. And I went to camp. Uh, like I said, I, I didn't grow much. I was maybe about 170 pounds by then. And I went to camp and all these guys, and the, the, their legs were about this big and they had beards and mustache. And they, were, they were men. And I went to camp and I, I, got, I, I was intimidated. I grabbed my skates, hopped on a bus station, I went home. Uh, I went back to Garden River. I said, "This is, uh, I, I can't play with those guys." And had you even skated with them at all, or just? I uh, know that just, was that was the first time from just, from, wow. and I didn't even know they had a draft. Uh, I was sitting at home uh, playing cribbage. Radio announcer came on just out of an NHL draft. The Detroit Red Wings draft the local product Ted Nolan in the fifth round. I'm going, was it draft of the army? I, I didn't know. <laughs> so. <laughs> So they, they called me up, told me when camp was going. Uh, they, told, they didn't tell me all the uh, requirements when you get there because there's fitness testing now. So I went and they grabbed this 200 pound weight 
and you have to lift it 10 times, I think, at the time. It went up, came down, didn't go back up. <laughs> I was just a little- You sure it went all the way up? Yeah, not even all the way up. I think it came down. Because I never lifted weights before. I, I never trained before. And, I, and they, they put you on the bike and they put the VO2 max thing on your thing. And I think I lasted about maybe, maybe 30 seconds. I was claustrophobic. And I, and I did steal one time. I, I walked by the big locker room. They had two uh, NHL jerseys hanging there. Well, a whole bunch of them. I grabbed two of them. And I put them in my, my coat and I walked out. And I went to the bus station and went home. So you basically shoplifted your first I shoplifted my, my first. <laughs> I, right. I lifted and went home. and uh, That wasn't on your resume, by the no, way. But, no, but okay. uh, then Ted Lindsay, uh, lo and behold, he, he called me up and explained everything, how it works. And that was the first time in my life that anybody ever explained how things worked. He said, you know, we have a farm system, we have conditioning coaches, we have all this stuff. We'll teach you how. Because my, my first experience leaving to go to Kenora wasn't a good experience, and I wasn't going to leave again. And my poor wife only was 16 years of age, and I was 19. I asked her to come with me, uh, because if she didn't come, I wasn't going to go. You go up to Detroit. Lindsay comes back to you and says, we're going to take care of you. And first time somebody explained things, which is great insight when you think about bringing people into an organization that you just think people know everything that's going on, how important that is. What was it like the first time you jumped on the ice in the NHL? Uh, I was maybe maybe intimidated a little bit because you're kind of uh, out of your element. All these uh, all these guys, I mean, they had the best training and the best uh, equipment. All of a sudden, uh, obviously, they're better. Uh, my brother, my younger brother, used to love to watch me play. And he said, Dad, I used to love to watch you play because you, I couldn't cross over. I was 19 years old and I got drafted in the National Hockey League. I, do, I couldn't do a crossover from uh, my right foot over my left foot. My left over right was pretty good, turning this way, but I couldn't turn this way. I mean, it sounds like almost impossible odds that you got there. And plus that, you're dealing with imposter syndrome, wondering why am I here? How did it all come together? I, I think realistically was, was the, the rejection. Uh, when somebody keeps telling you, you can't. And then all of a sudden you, you see people a little bit older than you try it and they, they come home and they're frustrated. And then you heard somebody else from another community, they're frustrated. And there was just so much rejection. There's so many broken promises, no jobs. Uh, it was just really, really depressing. So when I got there, the, the one thing I, I kind of kept in my, my brain was they're not going to chase me home. If I don't make it, I'm not going to make it because I'm, I'm not very good. So I made myself good. And I, and I just worked at it and got, got better. And uh, saying that, uh, we won the Caller Cup. Uh, my mother was just killed by a drunk driver at that, that year. Uh, NHL at the time, they only give you two days to go home in the morning and think everybody's okay. And they're not okay. So I went home and we came back and it was a, it was a total blank. Uh, we won the championship. Next day, I was in the, that night after we won, I was in the car going back home because it didn't mean nothing to me. And the experience never experienced because I, I don't remember it. Uh, when I was in Kenora, I don't remember the, the year in Kenora. I don't remember the... Is that uh, how you compartmentalize stuff? I, I, I just put up so many walls. Yeah. And they said, they're, they're not going to touch me. And that ended up actually later on in life. At that time, it was the only way to survive. I know how much your mom meant to you and how, how many wonderful things you said. Did you ever have a chance to grieve when you came home that summer? Was it, or was it just something that you just had to, again, put in a file drawer? And mm, well, it's a hard thing to, to talk about here, but uh, yeah, you just kind of put it away to, to a, a point that you, that you can. And my, my oldest, one of my, my brothers just passed away about uh, eight months ago, 12 months ago. And anyways, he was the one that really we had some really issues with, and he had uh, severe problems. So he drank quite a bit, went to rehab a lot. He lived on the street, uh, so we had our we had our conflicts. But he was still your brother. 
when he died was probably the, the hardest I've ever cried in my life. But it was 25 years later. Yeah. So it, it stores up and builds up. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. I mean, you have to get help and you have to get uh, talk about uh, mental illness and uh, things that happen in your life. So it, it was it was hard, but I, I finally had a, had a probably the best grieving session uh, 12 months ago. Tell me about your wife. You must have had to release all of this because, I mean, you were battling not only am I good enough to play, but racism, constant, and, and not only from the opposition, from what I understand, even a coach that coached you was absolutely derogatory to who you are as a human being. There was a coach in the American Hockey League. My, my second year, we played in the CHL my first year, and we went to Glens Falls, New York, and uh, I was having one of those bad practices where the puck bounced over you. You know, just one of those days you haven't got it. And anyways, this particular practice, everything I did went wrong. And he blew the whistle, and he came to center ice, and he put a puck in the middle, and he said, I'll show you Ted Nolan's school of stick handling. And he grabbed the stick, and he, and he made the wahoo sound, and he chopped it like a, he was using a tomahawk. And all the guys started laughing and, you know, I didn't know what else to what else to do, so I, I went right at him and I gave him the hardest punch I, I possibly could. But he was he was a fifth degree uh, black belt. <laughs> but on the ice, I knew I could take him on the ice. Yeah. And he was only a small guy. And just run like hell when he got off the ice. And uh, anyways, I, I went to, uh, I, I did it, jumped off. The guys pulled me off and I went to the locker room, grabbed my grabbed my skates again. I uh, went home to tell Santa, we're, we're, we're out of here this time for sure. So what did you do? I said, I told her what, what happened. And, and lo and behold, the general manager called me later. And, and now I reflect back on that. I, I think it was such a bad situation that they probably didn't want anybody to, to know about the situation. So the coach, uh, him and I uh, met up later and he apologized and, and we went forward from there. I guess before I leave the hockey, the people I've talked to about you said, your talent deserved many more games than you got to play in the NHL, both Detroit and Pittsburgh. And they stated just this sense of the bias, you know, that you weren't the same. You were part of the inner circle. You didn't golf with people in the summer. You Do you think that was true that you could have had a very different career if you hadn't been Ted Nolan from the First Nations community? Yeah, yeah no, no, no. No issue about that because when I played, it was almost like that natural thing. I, I, I didn't practice all the time. I didn't do all that all the time. I just I just played because I, I love the game. And, and you can analyze. I mean, the game's not that complicated. I mean, you just got to win a game. You got to put the puck in the net one more time than the opposition does. And, and you win. Only the Maple Leafs understood just, that. Just one. So <laughs> I, I just, uh, as I got better and, and I learned, I, I watched uh, Gretzky play in practice. I practiced with him every day. So I watched him. He'd he bend his knees and he could turn around on a dime that bugger. He wasn't very big. Then you watch the other guys and how they protect the puck. So no one taught me how to do it. I just watched and I, I observed. And I, I went home and I practiced it. And then when I got to a game, and all of a sudden, slowly and slowly, I, I got better. And I scored 28 goals in the American Hockey League. And that was the year Detroit let me go. They said there was no more room. They're going in a different direction. Younger players. I was only 25 years old at the time. So how much younger can you get? So anyways, they, they let me go. I signed with, uh, with Rochester. They named me captain halfway through the year. I played there, then I signed with Pittsburgh. But uh, you know, I, I scored a lot of points on very limited ice time. Ted Nolan's leap from a successful NHL career to a coach almost didn't happen. When we return, we find out why. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. A big shout out to RBC who have long believed that diversity is not only the right thing to do, but also the smart thing to do. 
Their purpose of helping clients thrive and communities prosper is core to who they are as an organization. And it's something that can only be achieved when everyone has the opportunity to achieve their fullest potential and speak up for inclusion. Diversity matters to RBC. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Nothing fancy about trying to beat somebody one-on-one. Let's get the puck in. Let's be physical as we can. Short, hard uh, changes. We got everybody rolling. We got everybody playing. And f*** them. No, he's just he's just so uh, straight uh, forward with you, and uh, I think that's that's um, one of the best qualities in a coach and in a person that you can have. You know, just someone who's an honest, honest coach. Ted Nolan is my guest today, NHL hockey player, NHL and international coach, and just a wonderful human being. Thank you. I want to move it into what turned out to be your superpowers, which was coaching. It became by accident. Again, you were so finished with hockey, you didn't want to think about hockey anymore. Tell the audience how, because a lot of us are going through transitions in life, and that was quite a big change from sort of being part of the team, fighting your way on the team, captaining the team, to actually leading the team. Uh, when, when I got injured playing with the Pittsburgh Penguins, I, like I said, I, I ruptured three discs in my back, and I went to the doctor, and he told me I, I, my chance of playing again probably slim to none. And I walked out of his office, probably the happiest kid young man as you could possibly, I, I went home and said, I can't play anymore <laughs> because I, I didn't want to play anymore. And I remember jumping off this, the, the step because my back was still relatively pretty sore. And I jumped off the, off the step to make sure it was hurt again <laughs> so I wouldn't have to play. That's how stupid You had to convince I, your family. That, 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 that's yeah. how stupid I was. Yeah. Uh, then I rolled it back in school. I went to uh, Lake Superior State University. Uh, which is across the river from Sioux, Michigan, uh, Sioux St. Marie, Ontario. Ran into the head coach of the Lake Superior State Lakers hockey team. Frank Anselone was his name. And he knew I was a player and asked me if I'd want to come out and help out the players, which I, which I did. I, I really enjoyed it. Then Phil Esposito, there's a name for, for a lot of us in this room, he owned the Sioux St. Marie Greyhounds. And he found out I was helping them, so he said, why don't you help us? I joined the, the team, and about a month and a half later, they, they fired the head coach. And Phil calls me up at home around 11.30. He said, Dad, we just let the coach go. We want you to take over. I said, oh, not a chance, Phil. <laughs> he asked me three or four times. And I, I told him, through, I just felt like I can't coach. I said, just do it as a favor for me. I said, okay. okay. Then all of a sudden, about 10 games in, and the fans started booing us. And we're, we're, we weren't a very good team. I wasn't a very good coach. Then all of a sudden, that, that little tick inside your brain started going, geez, they're booing me and telling me I can't coach now. I learned how to be a coach. I went out and buy a whole bunch of books. I, thought, I bought this book. It was by Phil Jackson, the, the basketball coach. Uh, I think it was called The Sacred Hoops. And I thought it was a spiritual book when I first bought it. I read it, and I'm going, geez, it's Chicago Bulls coach. And what he did with Dennis Rodman and Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and all that stuff. And, and he had the room designed as a, a spiritual ground where they, they meditated before the game. I'm going, man, if he could do that in pro hockey, I could do it in junior. I just slowly started uh, changing, changed my, my practice routines. Uh, and all of a sudden, uh, the next year we went from bottom place in the league to winning the league championship and going to Memorial Cup. And then we did it again the following year. We did it again the following year. We did it three consecutive years in a row. Uh, that's where I really learned uh, the importance of, of everybody. Nobody does it by, by themselves. I, I never got raised by myself. But I felt I had good guidance. Uh, then in junior hockey, we had, we had a whole bunch of competitive son of a guns boy. They, they competed hard and we won. And we, we had a lot of fun doing it. I, I was very unorthodox. And I looked at the team, we were talking about uh, diversity and inclusion. 
Uh, I looked at the team when I, when I first I started getting my, my mojo and I started looking at the team and how can we make this team better. And I remember talking to the management. I said, you look at our town in Sault Ste. Marie, it's 40% Italian people, a lot of Italians in, in Sault Ste. Marie. And you look at the demographics around the city, we're surrounded by a whole bunch of First Nation people. We gotta find ourselves some pretty good Italian players and we gotta find ourselves some pretty good uh, First Nation players. We got both of them, and all of a sudden, uh, the fans came from 2,500 to, and I think the, the code was 4,500 for the rink. I think we had 65 in that rink every night. We became a product of the city. Three times Memorial Cup, a champion. Again, people are saying, after the first Memorial Cup, you should have been coaching in the NHL, because that's like your fast track. You go into the NHL, Buffalo, you win Coach of the Year. What I really loved about your stories as coaches, and I want you to share with the audience, is your philosophy about wellness, caring versus, you know, maybe the Michael Keenan School of Hard Knocks, which is you just, you drive people to the bone. So share with the audience, because I think you were years ahead of what we were starting to understand that people and their health, their mental and physical health matter. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I think I, when I started becoming a coach, I realized when I was playing up in, in Kenora, uh, I, I lived in this house with another hockey player. Uh, he was a an A student. He went to school every day. His, his parents made him go to school. They never once talked to me about going to school. I had a general, uh, the team, the coach of the team happened to be the vice principal at the high school that we went to. And he never once told me to, to go to school. And nobody ever asked me, you know, how are you doing? Are you fitting in? No one's ever talked to me. So when I became a coach, I kind of put myself in that, uh, that young uh, young person's life, and so I, I talk to him a lot. I bring him in the office, and we, we talk about certain things, and then all of a sudden, I don't think anybody ever has a bad day at work purposely or plays a bad hockey or a sport uh, game purposely. I think something happened in their life to maybe, uh, so they're, they're not as concentrated as, as they should be. But if you don't ask, you don't know. So no one ever asked me any time in my whole uh, playing career how I was. And so I, I wanted to make that a, a point when I became a, a coach. I was going to ask the, my, my, my players, my employees, how do you feel today? Sometimes uh, they're not feeling very good and somebody else has to fill in. So I, I played four lines. Uh, a lot of teams play their top two lines, two, two, three lines, and the fourth line, four guys just sit there. And what I found, because uh, I was that fourth line guy, and if I did one mistake, boy, boy, the coach is going to give it to you and sit down the rest of the game and yell at you and make you an example because he didn't have the, the courage or the, or the balls to, to yell at a, at a good player. And so I, I took that to heart. I, I was going to give it to the good player as much as I give it to the, to the bad player because we're all the, all the same. And, but sometimes in society, we treat the wealthy a little bit different than, than someone who's down here. And I just felt uh, I had to treat everybody the same. So Pat LaFontaine, if you're a hockey fan, one of the most gifted athletes in the world, your brother says you'll never be able to coach him because he just knows everything. But Pat LaFontaine, from I understand, was the reason that a team you were doing coaching very well, you got run out of town because you put LaFontaine's health ahead of the box office. The one thing I was very proud of is, is, uh, is work. Because I don't think you, you accomplish anything in life without working. My skates were this big. It didn't really matter to me. I, I was going to work. My stick was, I had my, my, my same hockey stick when I was 12 until I was 16 years old. But you, you're not 12 years old, Mike, but then I had to learn to bend down a little bit to play with that stick. So I had to learn to, to do what I, what I, what I, what I had. 
and all of a sudden you're you're coaching at the, at the level where you you just really care about the players and and uh, anyways uh, by that philosophy uh, we were known as the hardest working team in professional sport and the guys we had on our team I mean they just uh, we competed hard we had a good goaltender we were led by Pat LaFontaine and uh, anyways one game we were playing and Patty took a very serious hit that I think it was his seventh concussion and he went down and he didn't look very good and the doctors within a week cleared him to, to play again. I'm going, man, he just said seven, seven concussions. He must have a super brain too. So anyways, he, he came back and, and we talked like you and I are talking and, and I noticed his eyeballs weren't quite lining up the way they should have been and he wasn't quite as, as sharp as he normally was. And I, I just simply asked him, I said, how, how are you feeling, Patty? So I'm, I'm, I'm doing good. I said, no, how are you feeling with the, with the head? Then all of a sudden he started opening up a little bit. Then all of a sudden, before I know it, he was crying. Then the tears started coming down and the emotion really came from him. And, and uh, that's when I, I, I told him we were going to Hartford. I, I still remember the, the game. Uh, we're going to Hartford the next day to play the Whalers and coming back to, to Buffalo. I said, we're leaving tomorrow. Why don't you take the week off? So anyways, in the meantime, he called his wife and his wife came to pick him up and they took him right to the hospital and he found out that he had, that he had post post-concussion syndrome, that if you would have got hit in that state of mind, who, who knows, you'd be you know, drinking food out of a straw. And then the manager found out that I, I, I scratched him. And uh, he called me up and said, we pay him eight million, whatever the significant money, uh, eight million, six million dollars at the time, and he's gonna play. And I said, I just gave him a day off. I said, no, you're not. You're not a doctor. You're not an effing doctor, was, was his exact words. Uh, I said, he's going to play. And I said, I already gave him a day off. He, he, I, I can't. So he, he called the manager, uh, the ownership. Then the ownership called me and they told me to play him. And uh, I refused again. And right then and there, I said, my, my days in, are numbered here. When you, when you refuse your manager, then you refuse the owner. Uh, it's trouble. But anyways, uh, uh, thank God uh, I did. And now I look back at it. There's, there's a couple of things that I was very proud of, of coaching, but uh, the human relationship that, that I created was probably the, the top. Helping Pat LaFontaine going through that, uh, that situation saved his life. And he's one of your dear friends. Yeah, we, we have a still special Fantastic. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My father never had a chance to see me play professional sport, and I didn't really realize how much he thought I was a good player. Um, he didn't really tell me. He just kind of went and watched, and I, I think if he was around, he'd probably you know, demonstrate a lot of parents how parents should be with their kids in sports and just let them enjoy it. Tendall is my guest today, and what you'll soon hear is the passion he feels. Not playing hockey or coaching hockey, but going into underserved communities and helping others. Thank you. I find there's a lack of civility happening in humanity. And I love the way you describe coaching Latvia. After you finished your NHL, you, got, you went over and did, like you've had success upon success, but you, what did you say about the Latvian players that you loved the most? It was, it was a handshake at the beginning of the game, right? Uh, they, they, they handshake before the game starts over in Europe and they handshake afterwards. Over here in North America, we're, we're almost programmed from a very early age to, to dislike our opponent and hate them for some reason. I'm going, why? I mean, we're just playing a game, try to, try to score one more goal than them. Your two sons both make it into professional hockey. One wins several Stanley Cups, one gets a pretty serious head injury. How did that feel knowing that sort of trail that you skated, they followed in your footsteps? Uh, you know, I, I, I didn't... Um, 
build that hockey rink, I, but I had a water hose this time. Uh, so I, I didn't make that rink for my boys to play in the National Hockey League. I, I played it so they can go outside and play and uh, get some exercise and, and, and play a sport where they can make some friends. And they just seemed to get better and better. And uh, But uh, when they were 14 years of age, both of them, they had a chance to play AAA hockey. They played AAA hockey since because their ability was much more than I was. My oldest boy, first of all, his coaches were yelling the F-bomb too much at practice and demeaning some kids. And I went on a road trip. I was coaching uh, at the time. My wife calls me and says, your son does not play there anymore. I said, why? I said, the coach was doing his thing again. So we pulled him out of AAA hockey. We put him in uh, host league hockey. He ended up being a first round pick in the OHL draft. A couple years later, ended up playing pro. And Jordan, the youngest one, did the same thing. But Jordan was, uh, he was blessed with not only talent, he was blessed with size. He was six foot four. Yeah. Uh, and he's a pretty tough kid. So we pulled him out, put him in host league hockey also, and uh, he ended up winning uh, three Stanley Cups. So your dad's name was Stanley. And they brought the Stanley Cup to his gravesite. How was that? Uh, my father was, uh, uh, he, he passed away when I was about 15 years of age, 14 years of age. And somebody told me a long time ago, he thought I was a pretty good player when we were growing up, but he never told me. When Jordan, everybody in the International Hockey League gets a special day with the Stanley Cup. So we had a chance to, to bring it back home and we brought it down to the, and it was kind of cool because Stanley Cup down to Garden River to, to Stanley's uh, reserve was, was pretty cool. And we had a, we had a sunrise ceremony at the, at the, at the gravesite. I tell you, it was in the second time we brought it back, uh, we had a powwow. Uh, we have a, a big powwow celebrations at home every year. And I was a powwow dancer. I, I danced until I was uh, 17 years of age. So to bring it back to the powwow was a, another special, uh, special occasion. Last one, we just did a private little thing. Everything I, when I listen to your interviews and I read, it seems to be that your real love, your calling, everything you did, the battles you fought, have really led you to your foundation and working with your two boys. So why don't you share the, with the audience why that matters so much to you and what kind of impact it's having? When I was um, uh, kicked out of hockey, I went through some dark, dark moments. Just like getting CEO of the, of the year of your, your companies and you're, you're the best in what you're doing. And all of a sudden, because what I did with Patty, and then he started making up rumors about what I was doing, and I was coming to practice drunk, and I, I wouldn't show up at practice. I'm going, give me a break. They squashed my career. I, I didn't coach uh, hockey for 10 years. And as happy as I was when I, when I hurt myself, I was probably just as happy when they let me go after I went through this dark period. And I went to a movie. I went to Muhammad Ali's story. And I'm going, man, this guy got his license taken away. He was kicked out of this. He was broke. But he never stopped believing in who he was. And here I was. I was, you know, uh, relatively still young. I was 36 years old, feeling sorry for myself. Let the game get the better of me. And uh, I walked out, uh, changed man. I, I called up a few friends of mine. I said, I have an idea. We raised some money. And they thought I was going to do it for sport. We had a golf tournament. A couple years later, we, we started the foundation called the Ted Nolan Foundation, and we raised close to close to three million dollars for uh, First Nation women uh, across the across the land. Because it's all about uh, it's all about relationships. I met a couple. They said, "Hey, you got to meet uh, you got to meet a friend of mine. That he has a foundation too." It was Paul Paul House, the CEO of, of Tim Hortons, and the, and the foundation they were talking about was the Tim Hortons Children's Foundation. I'm going, man, their foundation is way up there. But uh, long story short, we we made a relationship. We brought something like 750 kids to Tim Hortons Children's Leadership Camp every year from First Nation communities, not only in Ontario, but we did it up in, in New Brunswick. Then all of a sudden, Paul House says to me, he said, hey, you want a franchise? I said, no, not, not really. Uh, but a couple years later, I met a friend 
he said, Ted, can you, uh, you know anybody at Tim Hortons? I said, yeah, but, but I know Paul. He said, can you get us a franchise? I said, I'm not too sure we'll get a franchise, but he told me I could. He said, well, we tried to get one in Six Nations for last 10 years. They, wouldn't, they won't talk to us. I said, well, I know Paul. I'll call him. He said, where do you want to go? I said, Six Nations. We got the first Tim Hortons uh, opened up in, in Six Nations, and we're lucky enough to, to open up, I think, 10 to, 10 to 12 other uh, uh, franchises and other communities that it's the jobs that you create and the opportunities that you create. So Ted, 30, 40 years from now, there's a stage, your son's on it, being interviewed. How do you want either one of your sons to say, answering the sentence, tell me about your dad? Uh, I, I made him work for things. I, I didn't give him, you know, a lot of times in life, and I, and I, and I see it in our communities, we give our, our, our kids too much. Uh, we, we, we don't make them work for it as much as uh, back in the day. And not that you don't want to take anything away from them, but you got to make a sense of, of responsibility with, with your children and make them to, to appreciate what they got versus giving them anything that they got. So I, I really tried to teach my boys uh, where I came from, but some of the obstacles that uh, their forefathers had to fight in order to, for us to be here. If they didn't fight as hard as they could, we wouldn't be where we are. Plant the seed with them that uh, no matter what they, what they do in life, they, they got to be respectful and they got to work. So Ted, I always end my podcast with sort of my three takeaways. The first one, which I love about you, is that any time you took the skates and were ready to quit, what brought you back is you, when people said you couldn't, you could. And I think that's an incredible lesson in life because it's in, today with these headwinds, it's a lot of times it's easy to say, I can't. But you decided to push for it. Two, I just love your sense of caring and humanity. You know, uh, if you have a great team, it'll take care of itself. If you treat people right, if you, if the spirituality of it, it's not all about uh, the head or the bottom line or even the hands and the hockey stick, it was the heart really mattered. And I think that is incredibly important. And third, I just, uh, I just love the fact that you're uh, such an incredible, spokesperson and not just for first nations but for humanity to, to just realize that we are all human beings and we all deserve a fair shake and you had to battle so much to get your fair shake so just honored to uh, have you on chat of the matters and be part of this conference thank you well thank you very much for thank you Joining me on Chat of the Matters is Alan Richardson. He's a Senior Vice President of Talent Strategies and Solutions at RBC. Alan, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me back, Tony. Great to see you. I want to begin by talking about Ted Nolan. Grows up on a reservation without the resources or opportunities that many have. And I would argue some even take for granted. Today, he's not alone. I mean, youth in general are facing a very different world out there. What are you doing to sort of help Canadian youth find and pursue their path in life? So we have a, a, a multi-year investment we call, we call Future Launch, which is an investment in youth across Canada and globally. Um, but in Canada, it's really about um, trying to break three challenges that youth face. The first is having the right skills. How do we help them build the skills they need in order to uh, get to the career they're looking for? Uh, the second is about experience and offering opportunities through roundtable like uh, the Business Higher Education Roundtable and other community sort of folks we can work with to help them gain internships, co-op programs, 
programs or work integrated learning of some form. As you know, RBC is a huge uh, believer in that. My own team, we run something we call Career Launch, which takes in 100 uh, youth across the country. We actually work with groups to make sure that in there, there are underserved youth in that in that group that, uh, that we bring in. And then the third one is the network and helping uh, youth network with uh, folks to build their network because as we all know, uh, the best way to find a job is through someone you know. You know, Alan, I read a lot of what you write out there. And one of the quotes that you did that really stuck with me was, because work is important, but even most are the people behind it. And I really like that because it's to me, it's almost this move that we have to have a greater purpose than profit. What advice can you give to people to make sure they are really dialing up that empathy? You know, I think historically... Um we maybe saw those things as two ends of a spectrum. You can swing the pendulum towards performance and drive and outcomes, or you can swing the pendulum towards empathy and, and human-centric and, and sort of being there for the individual, but ultimately maybe at the sacrifice of performance. And, and I fundamentally think that's a compromise that we don't need to make. Helping people be at their best is how we drive performance over the long term. Today, helping people be at that best means understanding them, understanding their whole lives, being empathetic for the things that we're all going through, and helping people and feeling supported in what they need to deal with or what they need to do, and then encouraging them to bring their best, whatever that might be, to, to work uh, and to be at the top of their game. And I think if you do that, it's not about the number of hours. It's not about this singular focus on output and productivity. It's about creativity. It's about being engaged and seeing answers to problems that we couldn't see before. Um, and that takes someone who feels supported and confident and not nervous or distracted by what's going on in the rest of their life. I have one more and I'm kind of doing the parallel hockey that, you know, when you go into professional hockey through the OHL or the Canadian Hockey Canada, it's a rigor. Today, though, I'm looking at a world where it's changing, where the rites of passage isn't necessarily a college degree or a university degree. We're seeing major corporations bringing out their own certificates. We're seeing a move back to apprenticeship. What are you seeing from your point of view that might help youth navigate what should I be studying, learning, and doing to set myself up for future success? Maybe we'd looked over the last 20 years for universities for something that they weren't really intended for. I think university is there to stretch us, to take our brain and, and make it bigger and wider and broader. And that's not about building you towards any individual career. It's about someone who at 18 years old maybe doesn't know what career they want to do and wants to really continue to broaden themselves. I would say to youth, if you know what career or you have an intent in where you want to head, there are programs, apprenticeships, methods and means to get to those careers and set yourself up for success in those careers much longer term. Whereas if you feel that you don't know and there's an exploration needed and you want to broaden your, your skill set in a more horizontal way, that's where I think university has a real opportunity for you because that's what it's there to help you think as opposed to necessarily learn a technical skill. You need both these days. You need those horizontal skills and you need technical skills. But I think it's then for the individual to decide sort of what path they want to take. And as an employer, I mean, to your point, we are seeing opportunities to bring people in earlier 
but also thinking about how do we partner with universities and colleges differently so that they can help us in this sort of sense of ongoing education and learning. Because truthfully, the, the one thing we know for sure, the world changes so fast. If you're not learning skills constantly, you're going to fall behind. There's a greater need actually for us to partner uh, to really build that sense of how do we how do we leverage the capabilities that universities and colleges bring to help us with ongoing lifelong learning, not just something you do until you're 22. I can understand why your title is Senior Vice President of Talent Strategy and Solutions. Thanks for joining me on uh, Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me, Tony. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.